0: This morning, I'm going to start with a joke that was one of Zach Anderson's favorite jokes, so the youth have probably heard it before. There was a guy named Dave, and he loved to brag to his boss about how everybody knew him. And his boss had finally had enough of it. His boss says, prove it to me. Dave says, I'm serious. Everybody knows me. Name anybody. His boss says, okay, Tom Cruise. Dave picks up his phone, calls Tom Cruise. They go to Tom Cruise's house for lunch. As they're leaving his house, the boss is very impressed, but he's still skeptical. And he says, I think you got lucky. I don't think everybody knows you. Well, Dave turns to me. He's like, okay, let's do it again. Name anybody you want. The boss says, President Donald Trump. And Dave is like, oh, we were just hanging out last week. Yeah, let's go over to the White House right now. So they fly to Washington. They get a tour of the White House. And Trump recognizes Dave in the tour and invites him in. They have a drink, and they hang out. And now the boss is starting to think that maybe everybody does know Dave. He's kind of shaken up, but he's still a little bit skeptical. And Dave can tell. So Dave is like, come on. Anybody you can think of, just name them. I bet you they know me. The boss is like, he can't think of anybody else, so he says the most famous person he can think of, the Pope. says, the Pope. And Dave is like... Oh, yeah, I know where he lives. Let's go. And the boss is like, everybody knows where he lives. That doesn't prove anything. So they fly to the Vatican, and the Pope was going to give a speech that day to everybody. And there are thousands of people. And Dave says, listen, there's too many people down here. The Pope won't be able to see me when he comes out on the balcony. So I'm going to go up into the building and come out with him and wave to you. That way you'll know that I know him. The boss is like, whatever. Okay. Thirty minutes go by after Dave disappears, and sure enough, he comes out onto the balcony with the Pope, and waves down at everybody. And then the Pope gives his speech. Everybody cheers. And they go back in. When Dave comes down, he finds his boss unconscious on the ground. He's fainted. And he wakes up his boss. He shakes him. Are you okay? Boss, what happened? His boss says, it was too much, Dave. I couldn't handle it. That was the last straw. Everybody really does know you. When you and the Pope came out onto the balcony, the guy standing next to me, he said, who in the world is that guy standing next to Dave? This morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Whether this is the first time you've heard this parable or the hundredth, I want to ask you this morning as you listen to examine your heart and see which of the three characters you relate to the most as we look at the youngest brother, the father, and then the older brother. And I know we just read it, but we're going to read it again. Let's listen as we look at the first part of the passage. Luke 15 11 through 19, and he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and in your sight. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So here Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees because they've been complaining about the people he's hanging out with, right? The sinners and the tax collectors. The Pharisees don't think a teacher claiming to be God should be associating with those types of people. So the younger brother represents the sinners and the tax collectors. And Jesus tries his best to explain To the Pharisees, the immeasurable joy of God when sinners and tax collectors repent. Because he wants them to get it. But as we all know, the Pharisees don't get it. I don't know about you guys. I want to get it. I don't want to miss what's so important here that Jesus told three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. I don't want to miss what's so important that Jesus said earlier in the chapter, I tell you. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. So why is, why is repentance so special? Let's look a little closer at the younger brother and find out why. He took all he had, and he ran away, and he did exactly what he wanted with it, and he wasted it. And then when he was broke, he hired himself out for a job that couldn't even pay him enough money, there was a famine. And to top it all off, he was feeding pigs. Now, it looks like a bad situation at first glance, but if we look a little closer, we see how terrible the situation really is. Okay, he's completely alone, first of all. Any friends he had are gone because the money's gone. Hiring yourself out as a servant is already lowly work, but for a Jew, feeding pigs would have been the worst job imaginable because of all the unclean creatures, the pig was the most unclean. And to top it off, the food that was being fed to the pigs, you're so hungry you want to eat it, but you can't. Because it was a hard pod called a carob pod that was almost indigestible for people. So this wasn't just a bad situation, you guys. This was rock bottom. He had hit rock bottom. And here's, what we start, here's where we start to see what's so special about repentance. Repentance. Because when you hit rock bottom, something happens. You're forced to make a choice. You're forced to make a decision. Either for God or against God. If you choose against God, you're saying, I'm good as I am. Thanks, but no thanks. It's crazy, right? Who would want to stay at rock bottom? But if you choose for God, that's almost crazier because you're saying, I'm ready to be broken. That's one of the scariest things you can say to God. I'm ready to be broken. But there, alone, hungry, penniless, in the mud, surrounded by pigs, the younger brother was broken. I want you to imagine with me for a second that you're this newspaper and you don't want to be broken. Maybe these holes in this rip are some secret sins you have in your life. Maybe these words are your accomplishments. Maybe this stain over here is, is too embarrassing to talk about. You're not ready to let go of it. Nobody wants to be broken. Nobody chooses to be broken. Who would? At least you shouldn't choose to be broken, right? It's so painful. It, it hurts. And... It's not just painful, it's, it's terrifying. Because you have no control of the outcome. But that's the beauty of being broken. Oswald Chambers, when he describes the Apostle Peter denying Christ three times and being brought to his knees, to his rock bottom, when he was broken, Oswald Chambers says, only when you come to the end of yourself, when you come to the end of yourself, of all your self-sufficiency, when there's not even one shred, when there's not even one strand of yourself left, only then are you ready. Only then, in that helpless and desperate, lonely and needy situation, are you ready? Ready for what? ready to be made new, ready for the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. And when I say be made new, I don't just mean made new. I mean Romans 12, 1 and 2. Maybe you guys have heard it before. I mean being made new like it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord God as your spiritual act of worship not conforming any longer to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his perfect, pleasing, and holy will. That's being made new. But too often, when we're given a chance to count the cost and be made new, we squander it, we throw it away. We tell God, you know what? You don't know what it would mean for me to give up everything to you. If I was to give up everything for you, that's, that's too much. I can't do that. Not yet. And so we say, we'll compromise. We want to compromise, right? But here's the problem. The Holy Spirit, he doesn't deal in compromises. You can't go to God and say, I'm ready to be broken, but only this part of me. Leave the rest alone. In the same way, you wouldn't go to a doctor and say, hey, I'm ready to be healed, but only on the left side of my body. It doesn't make sense, but it also means you can't be made new. God can't break just part of you. He has to break all of you. And God can't transform part of you. He has to transform all of you. One of the most powerful examples of transformation is in Acts chapter 9, talking about Saul's conversion. We see just how far God goes when he makes something new. He took a killer of men, transformed him into a fisher of men. Everything that was evil, everything that was wrong with Saul, God made good. When we let go of control in our weakness... His strength is made perfect. I want to show you guys a video real quick of a, of a bird that finds strength where it thought it had weakness. I love that video because it's an awesome example of what Paul's talking about when he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the younger brother was broken, and he decided to turn his heart back towards the father what is the attitude of your heart let's continue by reading the next section in luke chapter 15 where it introduces the father verses 20 to 25 so he got up and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him the son said to him father i've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is Jesus. The father represents God. God. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees the same joy, the same feeling that a father might feel when his long lost son comes home. That's what he feels when the sinners repent. And the seemingly embarrassing displays of emotion from the father, from him running and probably having to hold his robes up to keep from tripping over him while he goes to greet his son, all the way to him kissing and hugging the son that just squandered his wealth, only shows all the more that Jesus couldn't care less what people think is proper and dignified if you choose him, He's going to celebrate you. If you repent, the moment you turn around, the Father's love is there to meet you right where you are. And that's the heart of Christ. Wrapped up in this example of the Father is the heart of a God that rejoices when the lost is found and celebrates when the dead come back to life. But it's also what we're called to be. Jesus isn't just giving an example of himself to the Pharisees. He's also painting a picture of how our heart should be towards every non-believer and believer around us. The father had a heart of joy and celebration and rejoicing and love. What is the attitude of your heart? And finally, let's look at the older brother in the last section of the chapter. Verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him home safe and sound. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. And you've never even given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for, the father, for, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So the older brother represents the Pharisees, right? The older brother lived with his father, He never made any life-altering mistakes like his younger brother. And yet something's not right. The most common point to make here is don't be like the older brother, right? He's a cautionary tale about the dangers of pride, judgment, anger. But what Jesus is actually doing is giving us an example of something more relatable than the Pharisees. What I mean by that is when the Pharisees are mentioned, most people don't raise their hand and say, that's me. I'm a Pharisee. I struggle with living out the letter of the law. I judge people when they don't follow every single rule that I do. But when we look at the heart of the Pharisees, through the lens of the older brother, it suddenly becomes very understandable and sometimes uncomfortably relatable. And that's why I relate with this character the most. And I don't like to say that. I think this is the most dangerous attitude to have in your heart. It starts with complacency. You become satisfied right where you're at in your relationship with God, and you start to rely more on the gifts that he's given you and less on your relationship with him. And as you continue to make all the right choices, you neglect the attitude of your heart. Before you know it, you have anger or pride or jealousy growing where love or compassion used to. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the older brother did. And the reason it's so dangerous is no one outside of you can tell when this is happening. Because it looks like everything's fine. There's no outward appearance of sin because it's all inside. And that's why it's so dangerous. The Pharisees and the older brother got caught up on the outward appearance of evil. They got so caught up in defining sin by outward actions, they thought they could assume the attitude of the heart. But nobody can do that. Only God can know the heart of man. When I was in college... My dorm had a strict no pet policy. I think I have a picture, yeah. And so naturally, my roommate and I, we went out and we caught a stray cat, a little brown cat. We named him Boiber. He scratched my hands up when we caught him. We managed to keep Boiber in our room for five days before we were busted. We kept him in a cardboard box under my bed so when the RA would come into the room, we could just close the cardboard box. When they busted us, we had to let him go, so we went out into the forest and let him run out. And my roommate was so sad, he waited under a tree for four hours, convinced that Boiber would come back and say hi, but he never did. It was very, very sad. When we asked my RA, how did you find out? How did you bust us? The RA looked at us like we were joking. He said, you guys were emptying cat litter in the hallway in front of me. (laughs) When I would pull up outside the dorm, I would see the cat in your window. very obvious. So we were let off with a warning that time. And naturally, my roommate (laughs) decides to teach them a lesson. Two days after we let the cat go, he bought a hamster. We managed to keep the hamster for 24 hours before we were busted. (laughs) Now, since the hamster wasn't wild, we couldn't let it go in the forest. So we had to keep it in my car in the summer in South Carolina until we could find a home for it. And unfortunately, we overestimated the benefits of cracking the window in your car because the hamster died very quickly. It was very sad. But this time, the residence life director, the RA's boss, wanted to talk with me and my roommate because he couldn't believe we could be this stupid. And in the conversation with him, he asked me something that I still remember. In fact, I always remember it. He kept asking us, what is wrong in your hearts? What's going on in your life? that makes you think it's okay to act this way. It makes you think it's okay to do these things and break these rules. Now, neither myself nor my roommate had an answer for him because we thought we were fine. Obviously, looking back, we needed to grow and mature and learn to respect authority more. But it stuck with me because he was trying to assume the attitude of my heart based on my outward actions. I don't want to say that my former residence life director was a Pharisee, but it's very similar to what the Pharisees were doing. He was looking at the outward actions and trying to assume the attitude of my heart. That's what the older brother did, too. He couldn't handle the fact that his younger brother, a foolish sinner, could be accepted back into the family and have the same part of the reward as him. His heart was so caught up comparing, his mind was so caught up And focused on his younger brother. He missed the error of his ways. And here's where we come to the biggest surprise of all. First, that the very thing that the older brother thought made him better than the younger brother, his goodness, his righteousness, that's what was holding him back. That's what was separating him from the father and turning his heart away. And the second thing, the older brother, just like the younger brother, was lost. And this is probably what shocked and angered the Pharisees most of all. Was that Jesus was saying, you are just like the tax collectors and the sinners that you hate. You need the same repentance that they do because you're lost like them. Tim Keller describes the brothers this way. He says, one brother tried to use the father to get what he wanted by being good, by obeying, by staying close, keeping all the rules. The other brother tried to use the father to get what he wanted by disobeying, running away, breaking all the rules, and being very bad. So we see that both brothers, in trying to control the father and use him to get what they wanted, ended up alienating themselves from the father. They were both lost. They both needed repentance. So the older brother did all the right things, but he neglected the attitude of, Of his heart. And that's my challenge for you guys this week. Examine yourselves. Look inward and ask, what's the position of my heart towards God? And I want to close with this picture. This is Christ. If you remember one thing from this message, I want you to remember this. This is the heart of Christ. The open arms of God rejoicing as he embraces the dead coming back to life. The lost being found. Let's close in prayer as the worship team comes up. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you this morning. Thank you for giving us life and loving us first so that we can love you back. I pray that we would examine our hearts this week and that we would turn them towards you and repent not just of anything but of everything and surrender completely to you. Transform us and make us new, however painful it might be. In Jesus' name. Amen.